Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China with our indispensable daily newsletter, our website, and our growing range of podcasts and videos. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. The Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, formally opened in January 2016, headquartered in Beijing. What the organization does is all there in the name. It lends to Asian nations for investment in infrastructure. Listeners to this program doubtless remember the embarrassing missteps that the Obama administration took in trying without success to dissuade some of its allies from joining as founding members. These days, though, one hears very, very little criticism of the bank as the initial skepticism over its governance and its environmental standards and so forth, concerns over Beijing's control of the bank, have largely, if not entirely, subsided. But AIIB has been quite active, especially considering its relatively small capitalization and the small size of the organization itself, and during the COVID-19 pandemic has found a new and very important role for itself today. To talk about the state of the bank, I am joined by Sir Danny Alexander, Vice President and Corporate Secretary of the AIIB. Prior to joining the bank, he spent most of his adult life as a politician, winning a parliamentary seat in 2005 as a Lib Dem MP representing districts in Scotland, and becoming Chief of Staff to Lib Dem Party leader Nick Clegg in 2008. During the years of the coalition with Cameron's Conservative Party, Sir Danny was appointed to Secretary of State for Scotland, but was very quickly promoted to become Chief Secretary of the Treasury. He lost his seat in Lib Dem route in 2015, but don't feel bad for him. He is, after all, the only guest on this show to date to have had a beer named after him. And I believe the first knighted guest that we've had, Sir Danny Alexander. Welcome to Seneca. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for the introduction. I'm sure we'll come to the ginger rodent beer later. <laughs> yeah, we have to. And uh, I, I actually have to, to call out one other thing is that you're a heavy metal fan and, and listeners to this show will will be sorely disappointed if we don't talk to that uh, to that subject a little bit. Right. Since my, since my teenage years. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were chief secretary to the Treasury at, at the time when the U.S. was was lobbying Australia, South Korea and other countries that had been invited to join its founders just to not do so. I imagine you must have had some conversations with, with Jack Liu, who was then the U.S. Treasury Secretary, about this. Was this something you had been paying attention to? Because at that point, you hadn't been tapped for the bank yet, yeah? Um, very much so. It was uh, it was an important decision for the coalition. And, um, uh, you know, George Osborne and I were le were leading the, the Treasury for the two respective parties. And so we were the ones who were kind of examining closely what was going on and decided, having looked at it, that we thought that... Uh, the UK ought to join, and so we, you know, we recommended that to our respective 
party leaders and colleagues. And, uh, you know, actually the decision to join the bank for, from the UK's point of view was one of the very last kind of important decisions that the coalition government made before the uh, the election, which you mentioned already, when I had uh, yeah. was given the chance to seek alternative employment um, by the voters. <laughs> um, so yeah, very much aware of it. We, you know, we'd been we'd been watching it uh, uh, carefully. We'd been trying to get a sense of um, the substance of the proposals, and you know, we were very interested in the idea of a new multilateral institution. And we thought that the the kind of purpose about infrastructure investment was one that we believed was valid um, and we also thought that you know China taking a step to propose a multilateral institution where we favor multilateral governance then uh, we should we should uh, with appropriate reassurances support it and by getting involved we can you know help to make sure that it, that it, that it operates properly as part of the rules-based system that was our rationale um, and you're right there were um, many conversations with um, uh, many other countries, including the U.S. I'm not right. going to go. I'm not going to go into the, um, the, the, the 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 details. But yeah, you're right. And um, I guess uh, you know some of those concerns you mentioned. Um, was this bank going to be set up to try and undermine existing international standards to operate in a in a way that you know competed unfairly with the World Bank or whatever, um, would it be dominated by China or would it be a genuinely multilateral institution? We took the view that um, it wouldn't be those things, and that by being part of it, we could help make sure that it was, you know, operated within proper international rules, proper international governance. My own view is that that after after you know four and a half five years, we've proven the skeptics wrong. A couple of years ago, I actually uh, had the opportunity to sit down with another Danny, with Danny Russell, who hmm. was Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs. Yeah, I used to be acquainted with him. Uh, he was there during much of the second Obama term. He he suggested that the warnings uh, were along lines of, I mean, to use his colloquial American expression, you're buying a pig in a poke. That is, you know, you don't know what you're actually signing on to. You don't know anything. I mean, the the, the wraps haven't been taken off this thing yet. Uh, other American officials have, in the time since AIB got going, suggested, you know, that it was their skepticism, it was all that scrutiny uh, that it produced that prompted the bank to actually accept more international participation and establish such high standards for the ones. What do you make of that claim? And and what did you know at the time uh, that you and George Osborne decided that it was a good idea for the UK to go ahead and participate? I mean. By the time we made the decision, it was it was pretty clear to us that this was heading in in exactly the right kind of direction. You know, there were other countries like New Zealand, for example, who'd signed up to the negotiations much earlier. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the the process was quite transparent, so we could see the kind of you know draft documents that were being prepared, all of which seemed to us to be exactly the right kind of steps that you would expect in the in the, in the in the formation of this and um it was it was very important to the UK and i think also important to the other european countries who decided to join that the governance was strong the standards were high and those things and I, and i i i would say that the um uh, the views of those european countries who were considering whether to join and decided to join on those issues 
uh, was was very was very positive in getting the bank set up in the right way. But actually, the proposals that were there before we got involved were were you know were, were really good. You know, the, um, there was a uh, American lawyer, Natalie Lichtenstein, who'd been yes. tapped up as the as the counsel, chief counsel. You know, the lawyer basically writing these documents. Someone with immense experience of of multilateral institutions from her career in the World Bank, and you know, it was it was clear that this this was being taken incredibly seriously from the right perspective. Jin Lee Chun, who's now the president of the bank, but uh, was then the head of the secretariat, also someone who um, we and many others, I think had a lot of confidence in and and you know having now worked with him for nearly five years as a colleague i, I think that confidence is 100 percent justified so look it was clear to me at that time it was not would not be possible for the us to join the aib i mean taking that through congress at any time would be a complicated business but you know other other countries have to make up their own mind for their own reasons and i i think we made the right decision it, just now you mentioned natalie lichtenstein who who had served as you say as inaugural general counsel for aiib and I think a lot of people have deservedly given her credit for uh, the bank's very widely praised excellence in governance. Um, I want to just give a shout out to my friend Nason Mockbuby, who runs the uh, University of Pennsylvania's Center for the Study of Contemporary China, their podcast. Uh, and he did an excellent interview with Natalie. I, I highly recommend anyone who's interested in digging into that to listen to that. Um, Sir Danny, uh, can you talk about some of the features that you think have made for for good governance? What are some of the, the maybe some of the things that people aren't aware of that are in the charter of the AIIB? Well, look, it, it 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 is it's worth going back to the to the charter to the Articles of Agreement, and actually, you know, you will see that, that when they were creating the charter, they were drawing on provisions that existed in other multilateral institutions. Um, you know, of course, with the benefit of of being able to look at the experience of other other international uh, bodies, you you're able to look at well what works well, what what uh, you know wh- where do we want to pick up the right lessons. But um, I think maybe the f- most important thing to say is that it's completely in line with the kind of governance approach, governance principles of all multilateral institutions. So. You know, we have a board of governors, which is the the ultimate decision-making body. It's the finance ministers of the of the of the member countries. Um, they take the most important decisions. Um, you know, the, the the really the most important decisions are protected by a very high voting threshold. So, if you want to change the articles of agreement, for example, you need at least seventy-five percent of the of the of the of the shareholding to be willing to endorse such a uh, such a change. We have a board of directors that operates. You know, by consensus, which has twelve members representing constituencies, the shares in in the bank were uh, shared out in a in a in a fair and equitable way related to GDP. One distinctive feature is that the Asian character of the bank, if you like, is 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 um, exemplified by the fact that that seventy five percent of AIB is owned by the Asian member countries and twenty five percent by the non Asian countries. So you know, you have China, India. Russia, Indonesia, Korea, Australia as major shareholders, and then outside uh, Asia, com- countries like Germany, France, UK. Now Canada has also joined more recently. So those processes are very are very strong. There are strong protections in terms of the, you know, the the, the non political character of the institution, um, the high financial standards, uh, the sound banking principles that we have to apply. You know, all those things come from the charter and basically say. 
this is how this bank is going to work. And of course, you've got to take the document, you've got to put it into practice, you've got to make it real. Uh, but I think that you know the, the 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 accountability and the scrutiny that we have through our through our board and through our commitments to transparency, openness, um, you know, mean that this bank is really you know run along. I, I think. To, to very high standards from a governance point of view. Yeah, it seems to be the consensus. As I understand it, though, the AIIB has a structure where loan decisions, maybe, not, you know, obviously if you want to change the charter, you've got to go all the way to, to this board of directors, or actually above that. Uh, but the board of directors don't approve loan decisions, but actually the president does, right? That's actually quite... It, it, you're right. It's, please, a, it's, please, go ahead. it's an unusual feature, but it's it's a little bit more nuanced than you described. So what we put in place is something called an accountability framework where the board has delegated um, some of the decision-making power to the president. So projects below a certain size, um, uh, when, you're, when you're doing repeats of projects you've done before in certain countries, those things go to the president. But if it's the first project in a country or the project is above a certain financial size or risk level, then the board will still decide it. Um, and also the directors have a kind of call-in power. But I think it is an important thing because, um, in a sense, thinking about our governance, you've also got to look at, well, what have been, what have been the developments in governance in the, in, in, in the private sector? And obviously, during the financial crisis and after the financial crisis, there was a lot of work done to look at, okay, how can governance of financial institutions be be, be, be strengthened? Um, so the board having clear ownership of the strategy and the policy, that's what it does in the AIB. The board also having clear ownership of the risk appetite of the institution. You know, so our, our board is one of the, I think the first among MDBs to adopt a risk appetite statement. Now that sounds, you know, that, that a bit vague, but it's it's very important because it, it's basically the document that says, okay, AIB, we're prepared to take risks in these areas, but not in these areas. Um, sure. And so that means that it's the shareholders who are taking, taking the ownership in that space. That's important. And then on the projects, we say, okay, um, the board leads on policy and strategy. The board holds the president and the management accountable for our delivery against those things. And the board... Uh, delegates operational decisions to the president unless certain features pertain, which make the projects, let's say, particularly risky above or, a certain threshold, or, 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 or yeah, or or, or or very important or whatever. So, um, I think in that way, the 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 the, the division of labour between the board of directors and the management is much clearer. There's actually a much clearer line of accountability. Um, uh, we've also been. Um, I think one of the first multilateral institutions to formalize an annual performance evaluation of the president by the board of directors. Now, that's quite common practice in, in, in many kinds of institutions. We think it's appropriate in, a, in the AIB setting where you're delegating power to the president. So you've also got to strengthen the board's tools to hold you accountable for what you're doing. So you've taken some good practices from the private sector uh, in the aftermath of, of the uh, the financial crisis, uh, and I imagine that this lets you be a little more nimble and responsive. And I think a lot of people would probably be surprised to learn how small you actually are as an organization. You're a very lean operation. I think it's only three hundred some people. Is that correct? It is. Um, I, I mean, I think the, the the number of staff is a slightly misleading guide because we're still very much in the kind of early grow, growth phase of the bank. So, you know, we we have today three hundred. 
320 professional staff plus some consultants and you know locally hired administrative people uh, that will grow over time of course it will it has to you know we're, we're still yeah. yeah maybe a third or a little more than a third of the financing volumes that will be pertain when we're when we're you know fully mature but i think what you said is right it's the philosophy of the bank you know we we talk about being lean clean and green sometimes right, right. sometimes lean clean and mean is how it comes out but we but it's uh, <laughs> it's, uh, the, it's lean clean and green that we mean and um you know that means that we're you know trying to avoid becoming bureaucratic to becoming slow becoming kind of sclerotic in some of the, the ways that you work but look, we also have to be humble about that um, we're, this is still a work in progress. We're still building up this institution. So, you know, the, 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 the management is really focused on saying, let's build a lean, agile, responsive institution. But, uh, you know, those things are easy to say and hard to do. So we're trying our best and we're, we're, we're working towards that. But, um, you know, you see in many walks of life, not just MDBs, but, you know, I was in the British government, for goodness sake, you know, these, um, you know, big institutions can you know become bureaucratic if you're not careful and so that's that's kind of what we have to avoid but i think at this stage we also have to be a bit humble about our uh, achievements so far you're lean in another sense too uh, i think a lot of listeners would probably be surprised to learn how how relatively little you actually have under management right now i think it's only 18 billion dollars if I'm not mistaken, is that is that about right? Um, so we have um, uh, the, the the capital of the bank. So we have we have just under twenty billion dollars. I think it's like nineteen point four, which is paid in by our by our members. Mm-hmm. And then in addition, on top of that, uh, we have another eighty billion, which is called callable capital. So it's not paid in, but it's but it's 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 part of the capital base of the bank. So we would say. There's a hundred billion dollars of capital has gone into the bank, um, and then uh, our lending so far is about is about nineteen uh, uh, nineteen billion dollars. I think I'm just 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 checking the latest figures because we had a uh, we had some further approvals uh, just a day before yesterday. So yeah, so in our first kind of four and a half years, we've approved financing of nineteen point one billion uh, uh, US dollars. Uh, that's 83 projects in 23 member countries. So, look, we're we're, wow. Wow. we're 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 trying to build it up carefully, right? Because when we're we're you know part of making this bank work is to make sure the governance is strong, the standards are high, uh, that the projects are really carefully scrutinised before you agree the, the 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 financing, and that means that you need to develop good practices, you need to hire good people, and that all that takes time. So. You know, by the time the bank is is with the capital we have, by the time the AIB is 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 at a sort of steady state, we'll be doing maybe fifteen billion dollars a year of financing, but that won't be okay. for another another five or ten years. You know, so we're, each year we're increasing, and obviously this year with the tragedy of the COVID nineteen crisis, um, we've really upped a lot of our uh, lending for crisis response to a lot of our member countries. I, I actually want to focus in on that uh, quite a bit. But uh, before that, I do have one other question that I'm sure you get constantly, which is uh, the confusion between the AIIB and the, the Belt and Road Initiative. You've, you've probably encountered that a lot. People somehow assume that AIIB is part of BRI. Uh, can you set this straight? Is there any formal relationship between you know, Xi Jinping's signature BRI and AIIB? No, 
There's no formal relationship at all. Um, AIB is a multilateral institution. That means we follow uh, our own strategies, our own policies, um, that, which are set by all of our members coming together through the governance bodies that I, that I, that I mentioned. We're answerable to all of the members. Um, so our bank was set up with a mandate to invest in infrastructure to support the sustainable development of Asia. That means it, that in, included within that is connectivity projects. But connectivity projects that meet our own standards and our own project qualification criteria, not projects that tick a box of or have a label, whether it's BRI or Blue Dot Network or whatever it may be. We judge each project on its own merits according to, you know, is it economically beneficial? Is it financially sound? Does it satisfy the environmental and social safeguards? Does it have open procurement? Um we look at the debt sustainability position of the of the of the places that we're uh, lending to. We don't look at these labels, right? Um, right, right. And and you know it it's it's the, the projects come to us from the member countries themselves um, or from private companies. We can also do we can also support private investments. So, you know, right now, and I suspect this will continue to be the case for a long time. India is by far our largest uh, borrower. They're not notedly enthusiastic about about belt and road but they're they're, um they're 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 the second largest shareholder they're completely committed to aib they um are very well practiced at at dealing with multilateral institutions and that's a very very important and good relationship for us you raised another issue i wanted to bring up india but let's let's get to this first um this spring as you said while the pandemic was engulfing many countries around the world the AIIB announced a $5 billion facility to address public health needs during the pandemic. Uh, you started with a $350 million loan to China, but you've since announced loans to numerous countries. Was pandemic response actually part of the original thinking with AIIB, or was this something that you've had to somehow improvise a bit with? Um, it's something that we've had to think on our feet. We've had to be very agile and, and, and respond to circumstances. You know, um, in, a, in a crisis... International institutions like us have a responsibility to step up and and offer support to members where they need it. So we're doing, you know, we're providing financing for things that we would never have expected to do when we started out, right? So um, some of the lending has been, you know, straightforward lending to support the budgets of countries who are under stress. Um, for PPE and, and whatnot. Yeah, so for, 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 for health, for economic resilience... Um, for liquidity reasons, um, you know, and, and that kind of lending, especially especially lending, which is you know basically about supporting the budget of a country in in, in difficulties, that's not something we'll do on a, on on a regular basis. That's purely right. crisis. It's not something where we have particular expertise because it's not part of our kind of regular remit. So we're teaming up with the Asian Development Bank and the World Bank to do that together with them. Um, Health, we hadn't invested in any health projects. Now, health is part of infrastructure, but we hadn't focused on social infrastructure. So we've got into supporting some health investments perhaps much earlier in the life of the AIB than we'd, than we'd expected to. So that's about saying, you know, we've, we've, we, we want to be and we've got to be responsive to what our clients need. And right now, as you know, many countries, almost every country in the world is under huge pressure to manage the disease, to, to respond to the health crisis, but also to deal with the massive economic impacts. And so, it's, you know, for us, we've got, to, we've got to stand with our member countries and, and help them out through that period. And that's what we're trying to do. So 
Um, we, we, the facility is five to 10 billion US dollars. And if more is needed, we'll add more to it. That's a, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a big chunk and, and honestly much more financing than we, than we'd been expecting to do this year. Just out of curiosity, if you could maybe rattle off some of the names of the recipient countries. Um, so, uh, India, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Mongolia, Indonesia, um, and there's a whole bunch more in the pipeline. Impressive. Uh, and you've been coordinating, as you say, with ADB, with IMF, with the World Bank on, on crisis response. Right. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe just to roll back one stage, which is we, we've worked very hard to, to build very good partnerships with other multilateral institutions. So right from the, the, the start of the AIB, uh, co-financing projects together with the World Bank, with the ADB, with the uh, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, that was part of our idea. And, and, we, and it helped us a lot, but it also with large-scale infrastructure projects helps to share some of the some of the risks and uh, when the when the crisis broke a lot of coordination among the presidents of these institutions at my level at working level um, to because all these all these MDBs these these multilateral development banks have have slightly different remits they have slightly different memberships um, right. but we have a responsibility to make sure that that in total the support we're providing is what uh, is what the the, the members need um, and so there's been a lot of coordination about that, and I'm sure there will continue to be, because once you're through this immediate emergency phase, then um, given the scale of the economic damage seeming seems to be greater than the financial crisis in 2008 in many places, then further support will be needed for economic recoveries as well. So we're not, you know we're not we're not even really into that stage yet. So recently, criticism of the AIIB has been notable, I think, chiefly for its absence, but. Uh, even now, during the Trump administration, when just about every, anything that can be in some way tied to China has come in for real, you know, vitriolic abuse, there's been relatively little directed at your bank. Uh, but has the the precipitous decline over the last four or five years in in U.S. China relations had any impact on the way you've been able to conduct business? Have have the broader geopolitics of U.S. China relationship? had any impact that you can talk about? No, not really. I mean, it is the truth. I mean, US, the U.S. is not a member of, of our bank, though, of course, I should right. say. Um, the U.S. is is welcome to apply to join. The door is open for, for new members. Um, I'm not sure how likely that is right now, but um, uh, but the door is open. Uh, but, you know, we have, we started with 57 members. Now we have 102 members in the, in the, in the AIB. Uh, those countries have all joined because they're committed to making this institution work. And so our focus is on um, how do we uh, build an institution that draws from all of that experience from all of those countries and provides the kind of support that we want to provide. And so th I'd say the main impact actually over the last couple of years has been has been the economic one on some of our members. So we publish research every year looking at the Asian infrastructure market. Um, and it's very striking both in... Uh, in the research we published in early 2019 and the research we published early this year, that you could see an impact, particularly on private sector investment in infrastructure in the major infrastructure markets in Asia, caused by um, the trade tensions, uh, you know, heightened perception of geopolitical risks. And so that, that's having an effect. It's having an effect on the willingness of private investors to go into infrastructure in some places. It's a reminder of, of of how important 
crowding in private sector investment is. And it's also a reminder of the importance of having organizations like the AIB, which can take a longer term perspective, which can give a bit of security to other financiers. Um, and certainly, um, you know, we're motivated to significantly increase the proportion of our business, which is in the private sector over the coming years. So lowering the risk profile to bring in uh, institutional investors Precisely. into infrastructure projects. Okay. Uh, talk about some of your infrastructure priorities, broadly speaking, across the region. You'd say you, you do all this research. What are you finding that, uh, what, what categories of infrastructure are, I mean, I know that it's very country specific, but are there any generalizations you could make across, say, South Asia right now, where uh, you're, you're focusing so much of your lending? I mean, we, uh, we've identified basically um, four areas that we think uh, need to be prioritized and where prioritizing those areas is, is, is meeting needs and demands within the kind of clients of, 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 of AIB. So number mm -hmm. one is what we call sustainable infrastructure. In other words, infrastructure which is environmentally beneficial, whether it's um, renewable energy to help uh, our members meet their commitments under the Paris Agreement, whether it's um, urban transportation systems to get cars off the road and get people moving around more safely in big cities, uh, water and sanitation projects which have health and environmental benefits, those kind of things. That would be one kind of category. Um, secondly is connectivity. You know, there, there is a big need in many parts of Asia for infrastructure that helps to enhance connectivity both within and between countries to support trade, support the movement of goods and people and, and, and so forth. And so, you know, we finance some road projects. We've, we've, we've got railway projects that we're looking at. We haven't financed any yet. We financed a port project in Oman. You know, that we financed some telecommunications infrastructure. The third one, which we, we've uh, literally just concluded discussions about a, a, our strategy on, is, is digital. Um, so of course, commonplace and, you know, even more so now after this crisis, digital infrastructure is going to be absolutely critical to the future of countries in Asia. And yet there are huge digital divides, you know, between low income countries and the quality of their telecommunications and digital infrastructure and, and the better off countries, even within countries between urban and rural. And so for a, for a multilateral institution with a public purpose, we see a, a valid role for our investment to help bridge some of those divides. And then lastly, um, private sector, private capital mobilization, and where for AIB, uh, one, one area where I think we've been quite innovative has been uh, projects to try and enhance the sustainability, the environmental sustainability of capital markets in Asia, you know, ESG uh, rating, environmental social governance rating of bonds, which is commonplace in Europe and, and I guess the US, um, but not so much in, in, in Asia. Likewise, climate bonds. So we've, we've, we've launched portfolios in both cases to try and develop markets uh, in this region to, um, uh, to, to help more companies benefit from those kind of instruments. You've actually just raised a bond, speaking of bonds, uh, your Panda bond. Uh, there are a lot of sort of neo-Cold Warrior types who, who suspect that the, the real purpose of the AIIB uh, is that you're part of some master plan to supplant the dollar with the RMB as the de facto global currency. When I, when I've heard that in the past, I'd like to remind people that, uh, you actually only have dollar, uh, funds. Uh, but that's not going to be true now. You're actually going to be doing some RMB investing because you've raised this panda bond in RMB. Is that, is that correct? Right. So, um, the, 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 
you're right to say our capital is all in US dollars and the vast majority of our financing so far has been in US dollars. We're increasingly looking to diversify into other currencies, local currencies in mm-hmm. the in the in the region. Um, so this year we issued a US dollar bond, which um, raised I think three billion uh, US dollars. And then you're right, we launched our first uh, Panda bond, which was specifically uh, targeted at um, raising RMB, where as you said, we have a, a health-related, COVID-related project in China, which is denominated at RMB, and so it helps us to, 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 to get uh, the money in there. But, you know, like all uh, international financial institutions, we're going to be tapping lots of different markets in order to diversify our funding sources, make sure we can get the best price. Because in the end, you know, we're, we're AAA-rated institution. We need to leverage that rating to be able to pass on um, the cheapest financing we can to our to our members, especially the low and middle income countries in Asia. So, um, in in the years to come, you'll see AIB doing financing in a whole bunch of different currencies in in the in the region according to according to what's needed. I mentioned that I, I wanted to bring up India. India has, of course, been the largest recipient of loans from you to date. Uh, it is a member, but it's also been very skeptical of BRI and and has been, uh, of course, in a, 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 a nasty spat right now with China over the Ladakh area uh, of Kashmir. Um, are loans to India in any way imperiled right now by the situation with China? Has, has that had any impact? Absolutely right not. No, no change. Yeah. We're, we're, um, we, we don't look at political issues. We only look at the economic issues. Um, India has... Uh, big needs for infrastructure. It has very good capacity for developing good quality projects. They're great to work with. Uh, so you know we're we're very pleased with the way um, our our portfolio is developing there. And so no, look as a as a as a as a multilateral institution, we look at the projects. That's the only thing we look at. We don't look at the politics. And we have a, a really strong pipeline of great projects in India. And of course. Um, you know, India is the second largest shareholder in the AIB, so they're an important part of the of the bank. You know, they were they were ready when the bank started um, with projects coming down the tracks. That was great. As time's gone on, we've seen other other countries. We've been able to build up our our portfolio in places like uh, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Turkey, uh, and so you know you'll see other countries increase. But India is going to be a major major market for AIB. So the AIB is looking to get the private sector more engaged, and, and you've come up with a kind of uh, framework for institutional investors who are looking to invest in in more green and more sustainable projects, uh, infrastructure projects specifically. Uh, can, you, can you dig in a little bit more about this push? What's what what are you are you nudging investors toward right now? Is it as you said things like uh, renewables and uh, what about things like smart cities or or, or uh, so. All of that. I mean, it, just maybe to take one step back, first of all, to say sure. the green commitment is really built into the AIB. You know, our bank was created just a few weeks after the Paris Agreement was signed. You know, all of oh, our members, right. all of our members are signed up to the Paris Agreement, and uh, you know, we 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 see that as a major strand of our activities. So, uh, one side of it is investing in projects, whether it's public sector or private sector, and the areas you mentioned, like renewable energy. Uh, like smart cities, um, you know, urban urban transport, you know, subways, light rail schemes, this kind of thing. You know, those are 
areas where we see a huge business that we can that we can develop that's going to really benefit a lot of places. Uh, but at the same time, we also want to develop uh, capital markets in Asia so that there are more financing tools available for companies who are meeting or investing to high environmental standards. So the, the, the concept of ESG, environmental social governance ratings, is, is you know, quite well understood. Uh, it's not so well developed in, in Asia. So we set up an ESG bond portfolio. A company called Aberdeen uh, uh, Standard is, is running that for us, half a billion US dollars, to buy ESG rated bonds of companies to help develop information tools uh, in the Asian context that allow people to, to have more transparency on, on, on those kind of uh, instruments. And hopefully that will help to develop those markets. So not just for the AIB specific project, but for other investors also to, to become involved. Because we know from a lot of the climate related discussions particularly that, that um, getting financial markets to get their head around the importance of climate investment um, uh, and the uh, the, the need to mobilize finance more broadly for those objectives is important. And we think that, 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 you know, that's one example of something where, you know, AIB funds can help to catalyze, we hope, something much broader. I have to give a shout out to Calvin Queck, one of your colleagues there, right. who uh, was the person who actually put me on to, uh, introduced me to you folks uh, in, in the hopes that we could do a show together. And he, of course, came to you from Greenpeace and is a very, very committed environmentalist. Uh, one last question for you before we move on to recommendations. Uh, you recently closed nominations for the upcoming AIB presidential election. There weren't any additional nominations. It looks like Jin Li Chin is going to run unopposed. Uh, can you talk about uh, Jin Li Chin as a leader? Uh, he was formerly at CIC, very well regarded in the world of finance. Uh, tell me about him and his, his leadership style at the bank. So I, I, Jin is a remarkable human being. He's as you say, he's got great experience, you know, both from Chinese government, but also he was on the board of the World Bank. He was a vice president That's of right. the Asian Development Bank, as well as the CIC experience. So he brings all of that to bear. And I think, you know, he is personally very highly committed to multilateralism, to having an institution that runs uh, according to the highest standards of, 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 of international governance. So it's really a 21st century institution. And he brings that uh, into everything that we do. Also, the we talked about the lean philosophy earlier. That's something particularly mm. dear to his heart. He doesn't want to see uh, waste in the way the bank runs. But, you know, I often find um, in my discussions with him, I could just as easily be talking about Shakespeare as as, uh, oh. as uh, sustainable finance because, um, you know, he's a very um, accomplished uh, scholar of English literature. Um, indeed, he's translated some of the works of Shakespeare into Chinese. So, um, wow. Um, uh, quite that something, right? No, that is quite something. Um, and so, you know, really, someone with a with a deep hinterland in in many areas of culture, and 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 therefore, you know, brings that broader perspective as well as his international experience to 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 setting up this bank. And you know, it couldn't have it couldn't have happened this way without his his work and his leadership. Well, uh, unfortunately, I won't be able to to hold forth on Shakespeare well with you, but I can talk a little bit about two things that I do like, which are beer and heavy metal. Uh, tell tell us. <laughs> Tell us about tell us about the ginger rodent beer. So uh, that's a good good one. Um, in I think it was two thousand eleven, there was a, a a Labour Party politician called Harriet Harman, 
who um, made an attack on me when I was in the government, um, comparing me to a <laughs> to a ginger rodent, uh, and this got a certain amount of of of, uh, of, of media coverage, um, <laughs> and there was a local brewery in my constituency, the Cairngorm Brewery, makes absolutely wonderful beer. They they rang up and said, "Look, we'd like to have a bit of fun with this." So they brewed a beer. They bottled it, called it ginger rodent, with a nice picture on the <laughs> on the cover, and I think for a while it sold pretty well. Good uh, hoppy flavour, um, oh, and uh, Harriet was good enough to see the funny side, and I got them to serve this beer in the in the bar of the House of Commons, and uh, we went down and <laughs> we, we went down there and pulled some pints together. So it was uh, in the end, you know, very friendly. Oh, that's fantastic! That's just great. Uh, the other thing, uh, in a Telegraph interview, you did mention that you have an affinity for heavy metal music. Uh, I, I want to get into that with you maybe during the recommendation segment of, of our program. Uh, but let me first a, a brief message about how our listeners can help the podcast. Hey, cynical listeners. I'm really grateful to all of you who've stepped up and donated or subscribed during our drive. As you know, things are in a perilous state right now with U.S.-China relations, and it feels like the middle ground is disappearing really fast. I, I still believe that a deeper understanding of China is urgently needed, so help us get the word out about the podcast and help us keep going, because these things do cost money. If you think this program adds some valuable perspectives and helps to restore a little sanity, if you want us to keep fighting the good fight, then show your support by going to podcast.subchina.com. That's podcast.subchina.com. And help us out however you can. From our podcast team and all of SubChina, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your contribution. Okay, now on to recommendations. First, Sir Danny, it's true. You are indeed a metal fan. What, what bands do you like? And, and have you had a chance to check out any local Chinese heavy metal? Um, it's true. I am. Um, ever since my teenage years, um, my my, my uh, tastes date back to the probably mostly to the bands I was listening to in the 1980s. So I had the chance to go and see Metallica, for example, um, oh, in 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 London. I think it was in I can't remember 1989 or 1990. Um, wow. uh, Priest and Maiden. And yeah, exactly. And you know, yeah. the, 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 a lot of that British stuff. So. Yeah, I mean, I've probably become a bit more eclectic in my in, in, in my in my time, broadening from beyond you know metal to other uh, other uh, other rock music. But I still I still particularly still listen to Metallica sometimes. And then um, Lu uh, Louise Mensch, um, who w was a MP when I was in Parliament, is married mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. Lars Ulrich, the drummer. So, That's um, right. uh, you know, we, poor we... thing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in answer to your question, I haven't really got into any local uh, bands here yet until you gave me some recommendations. Um, oh, good, good, good. So uh, I was, I, I, I downloaded some, some of the Mongolian, I think Mongolian influenced music. Oh yeah, yeah, that stuff is great. Amazing. Uh, and one, one um, band that caught my eye was Tenga Cavalry. Ah, uh, fantastic amazing. music. Yeah. Um, yeah. The music to ride horses to over the endless, uh, Endless grasslands and of Mongolia. slay some innocent sedentary agrarian people while you're at it. I think it, it that that works too. I've actually recommended that that band as well on the show. Uh, Ego Fall is another one, and uh, Nine Treasures. Definitely check out Nine Treasures. 
they actually, I believe they won the Battle of the Bands at Wacken, the open air festival in Germany, the year that we went in 2013. I don't know if they won, if they, they, they were the second runner up or something, but they're a fantastic band. Uh, well, but, what do you, you say know, they were called? To, they're called Nine Treasures. Nine Treasures. Okay. Yeah. Jewel Ball. Nine Treasures. Check them out. Um, so Great. I've got a recommendation any- as well then. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's, uh, so your recommendation, I will, will note down as Tanger Cavalry. That's a, it's a terrific band. Um, that's, that's fantastic. I'm going to, to give my, uh, somebody asked me to share cocktail recipes, uh, not beer, but I'm going to go for a, another form of alcohol. Uh, I'm going to recommend a slightly modified version of the Sazerac, which is my favorite cl- uh, cocktail. It's, you know, the New Orleans classic. The Sazerac usually calls for a sugar cube to, to begin with, and then you, you know, dot it with some bitters but i i skip that i substitute two dashes of 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 luxardo maraschino liqueur which is a very useful thing to have around in quantity uh so in a mixing glass or a cocktail shaker two dashes of luxardo uh three dashes of peixodes bitters absolutely crucial two dashes of angostura bitters two ounces of rye or and two ounces of well i mean two two ounces of rye and an ounce of bourbon i i like actually to use this high rye bourbon uh, that is made by an American, uh, company called Redemption. It's, it's a great, great, uh, high rye bourbon. So it's three ounces of that. Stir it with ice, strain it into an old fashioned glass that's been rinsed with, uh, well, ideally absinthe, but any kind of anise based liqueur works. Zest some lemon peel on that and you're good to go. It's, it's, it's an amazing drink. Highly recommended as you're listening to the Seneca podcast. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Enjoy that. Uh, and Sir Danny, thank you so much again for taking the time. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I'll go and make the cocktail now. It's uh, evening time in Beijing, so I'm not sure I have all the ingredients, but I'll see if I can get somewhere close to it. All right, improvise. And there's some good bars that make some very good uh, cocktails in your in your area. So right. I hope you enjoy that. We'll be back in touch again. Thank, thank you, you so much. Good to talk to you. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts in the network, including the China in Africa podcast and the Pandaily Tech Buzz China. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.